0: even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready, with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next, after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zariah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok the priest... Benaiah son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Sheme and Ray and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle and fattened calves at the stone of Zehaleth near Onrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the special guard of his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My Lord, the king, did you not swear to me, your servant, surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me? and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you're still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room where Abishag the Shunammite was attending to him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it you want? The king asked. She said to him, my lord, You yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's son, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord the king... The eyes of all Israel are on you, to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived. And the king was told, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. Nathan said, Have you, my lord the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. Right now they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live king Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite. Is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servants know who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then king David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath, As surely as the lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground, prostrating herself before the king, and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Um, We tend to deal very well with death. Uh, I guess that's to be expected. However you cut it, uh, death is going to be something that we struggle with. But David himself uh, actually dealt well with death. Um, We looked together at how David dealt with death when we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 1 back in uh, mid-April 2018. You may remember if if you were with us back then. Uh, In that chapter, David receives the news that his worst enemy, King Saul, and his closest friend, Jonathan, had both died in battle. David, in response, composes a lament, a song used for expressing grief, words given in order to articulate the right response to the death of someone. And David made the lament compulsory. All of Judah was required to learn it and sing it. Why should a lament be taught to everyone? Well, so that everyone might learn the right response to death. The right response to death is to cry. Whether the person who's died is your worst enemy, like Saul, or your closest friend, like Jonathan, the right response to death is to cry. But we are hopelessly in denial about death and completely at sea as to how to respond. For us, when somebody dies, often close friends even avoid each other, cross the street to prevent meeting because they don't know what to say. Something that I've, I've noticed over the years is that, is that sometimes um, a, a children or, or young people uh, don't cry at funerals even when they knew the deceased very, very well, even when we might expect them to cry. And that's entirely okay. That's that's fine. That's age-appropriate. They don't know how to behave yet. No one's taught them. No one's showed them the way. We we do actually need to be taught how to respond to death. Another thing I've noticed is that funerals, often uh, older people do cry even when they've never met the deceased. And that's entirely okay as well. They know the right response to death is to cry. Well, forgetting that which had already been forgiven, David honored and praised both men in his lament. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Well, uh, David did death well, but his own death wasn't great. Um, we, We looked at that last week. No one composed laments. We don't hear about the funeral, although undoubtedly there was one, but there's no record of crying or weeping. David just passes from the story as a living character by way of a short obituary. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron, and 33 in Jerusalem. But along the way, in the first two chapters of 2 Kings, wherein David is already relegated to a supporting role in the drama of a dysfunctional family we get to observe in this chapter four different responses to death. David's staff, Adonijah, the eldest son, Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and Abishag, the Shunammite. And those four reactions are worth looking at. The reactions of David's staff... Verse 1, when King David was very old, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found um, Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took, she took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Well, as I, as I mentioned last week, uh, David is uh, very, very old by his contemporary standards. He's 70, perhaps not that old by our standards, but he's led a hard life. And perhaps the observation made in verse 1, the inability to stay warm, however many covers are stuck on him, and verse 2, uh, impotence, and perhaps those two observations are directly related. His heart is going, his blood pressure is failing, his circulation isn't doing so well anymore. But the death of David for David's staff is a reality to be fought against at all costs. You can just hear them saying, stay positive, we're going to fight this. To be a little bit more sympathetic to the staff, we can see, along with them, that David's slow demise is indeed a problem. It's causing political instability, a power vacuum. This isn't good for national security. But their response is a typical one, a typical one to death. Uh, They will do everything they can in order to obtain the one thing which they can't have, which is for things to be just the way they've always been. And so they subject David to the most advanced medical treatments of their age. More blankets and a beautiful young girl. The idea behind the blankets is obvious. The idea behind the beautiful young girl is both physiological and psychological. Physiological. Her body heat might give uh, all that's needed to reverse the decline or at least kind of keep it plateaued for a bit. Psychological, well, their thinking is clear. Perhaps Abishag will ignite the old spark in the old boy. If anything can revigorate him, maybe it's this. After all, it's generally understood that if a man's lost interest in that, he's lost interest in everything. So that's their thinking. More on Abishag later. But as verse 4 delicately puts it, This medical intervention was nothing but a humiliation to both David and Abishag. The staff are in denial. One of the uh, strangest reactions uh, I got um, as a hospital chaplain um, were from family members whose uh, whose beloved was in hospital and whose lives were in danger. Um, I remember a youngish man, probably around 30, who was dying of an extremely rare form of cancer. Uh, He wanted to speak to me. Um, I knew it, Uh, he told me. Uh, He he wanted to speak to me. And he wanted to speak to me because he, he had nobody else to talk to. I mean, his family were there, of course. His family were there all the time. But he couldn't speak to them. They were all desperately trying to stay positive, whatever that might mean. And it was essential to them that he fight this, whatever that might mean. But he couldn't actually talk with them because they couldn't deal with reality. And the reality was he was dying. I tried to make space and time to talk to this, this, this guy, but his family were always there. And when I entered the room, they they didn't look at me. They didn't speak to me. They didn't acknowledge my presence in any way at all. And the reason that they didn't do that was because they couldn't. I was literally a blind spot. Sometimes hospital chaplains are the functional equivalent of the angel of death. But they were in denial. They They didn't see me because they couldn't see me. They were in denial, and denial is a real thing, a necessary shutdown of certain cognitive processes in order to prevent the cognitive machinery from simply breaking. Death as something unthinkable, as a reality to be denied. David's staff. Adonijah, death as opportunity of a lifetime. In the musical The Lion King, the young cub Simba, very early on in the drama, sings a delightful and catchy little number, you might have heard it, called I Just Can't Wait to Be King. And I'm sorry if you now have that as an earworm. (laughs) Just can't wait. Oh, sorry. Um, In his imagination, Simba glories in his future destiny as king of the Pride Lands, of king of the Pride Lands. I'm going to be the main event like no other king before. I'm brushing up. I'm looking down. I'm working on my roar. In his imagination, he glories in his imagined future freedom. No one's saying do this. No one's saying be there. No one's saying stop that. No one's saying see here. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. What Simba, and the audience as well probably, don't register is that what Simba is actually singing is I just can't wait for dad to be dead. And that is Adonijah's song. I just can't wait for dad to be dead. In his own imagination, Adonijah simply can't be all he needs to be. He can't fulfill his potential. He can't be all he ought to be. Except that dad does the decent thing and kick the bucket. And we all share, all of us, we all share, should have written it on that egg, the desire to be like the gods, knowing good from evil and therein having the power, the freedom, to be all we can be, and in that to receive glory and honor. Ah, yes, says God. Mm, I know that desire, but on the day that you eat from that particular tree, you will most certainly die. Because the truth is that life and love lead to limitations. Uh, Or relationships create limitations. Limitations. And the closer the relationship, the more precious and dear that relationship, the greater the limitation the limitations imposed on us. To be in relationship is to choose to be limited. Not all that you can be. Adonijah, death as golden opportunity. It's a common response. Bathsheba, but what about the will? Now, to be entirely fair, Bathsheba's concern is legitimate. We know, along with David, Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet, that the will of God is that Solomon, not Adonijah, rules in his father's place on the Davidic throne. So there is, in Bathsheba's flight to David's bedroom, a defense, indeed, of all that is right, just, and true, and godly. But it is business, isn't it? It is business. And only business. It is the business of the last will and testament. It is business that has taken Bathsheba into David's presence. She wasn't already there. She wasn't spending time with David for the heck of it. Reminiscing about the good times. And celebrating their love for each other while they could. For Bathsheba, death is a business deal to be negotiated. It's a common response. It's uh, subtle, but scripture isn't particularly kind on Bathsheba. You may have already noticed that in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, uh, four women are present, and three are named, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And some of those women have pretty lively pasts. But Bathsheba's name is blanked. And we read instead David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uh, The blanking of a name, a name that everybody already knows, the blanking of a name in a genealogy is highly significant. And Middle Eastern commentators likewise state categorically that it is impossible that a woman in the Middle East might be observed taking a bath, except that she wanted to be observed. If Solomon becomes king, Bathsheba, not Solomon, Bathsheba will be the most powerful person in the kingdom. Because in terms of real influence, the king's mother is the real seat of power, because no good Jewish boy ever says no to his mum. Although, in fairness to Solomon, he's going to do precisely that by the end of chapter 2. But I'm just pointing out, it's not as exactly as though Bathsheba is a disinterested party in all this. When I preached on David and Bathsheba back in 2018, Um, I explained how I thought that King David had fallen rather stupidly for a flirt, that the whole thing had been orchestrated by Bathsheba, and that, therefore, David and Bathsheba shared responsibility. Uh, There were some present back then who were incensed by that idea. Uh, For them, this was sexual abuse, sexual harassment, Bethsheba being treated as an object by powerful men in a patriarchal world. And any suggestion otherwise was extremely offensive. Indeed, I suspect that what they thought I'd said was something halfway in between, that although Bethsheba had been the victim of sexual harassment, her carelessness in being observed meant that she deserved it. What I think they may have heard from me was victim-blaming. Uh, heaven forbid, uh, of course, I, I wasn't saying anything of the sort. I still think my take on that story is accurate. Bethsheba is a schemer. But in fairness to those people back in 2018, to speak on Bethsheba in that way, in the middle of the Me Too movement, without anticipating their reaction, was spectacularly naive of me. It was a really inept thing for me to do. But now, in looking at Abishag, that is unequivocally what we have here. Sexual abuse, sexual harassment, at least in principle, if not in fact, Abishag the Shunammite being treated as an object by powerful men in a patriarchal world. And uh, in speaking on such things, I declare in advance my own limitedness. My own limitedness includes the limits of being male. And the limits of having had, really, a very privileged and very sheltered upbringing. For males such as myself, it isn't always obvious how traumatic sexual harassment can be in its various forms. My ability to put myself in Abishag's shoes is limited. But for other people, the Abishag story will be painful. It will provoke memories that might be traumatic. I beg grace... As I seek to do justice to Abishag's role in the story of David, now that I've declared that I cannot fully understand the things that I'm talking about. That said, let's consider this story in context. Looking at the life of David has afforded us the opportunity of talking about the Bible as a document that is, at least in places, simultaneously patriarchal and anti-patriarchal at the same time. In looking at Tamar, in the treatment of uh, the ten concubines by David, the wise woman of Abel Beth Ma'acha, the testimony of Rizpah, daughter of Ai, who kept vigil for her dead sons, Uh, Abigail and um, her negotiations In, in these events, We've seen painfully at times, but plainly, the assumptions of patriarchy. The assumptions of patriarchy are the assumptions of the inferiority of women to men in physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual terms. And perhaps most painfully, that women in biblical times had very little say over their futures, and over their bodies. But we've also seen those same assumptions of patriarchy under attack in the text. Women uh, like uh, Tamar and Abigail, behaving with intelligence, wisdom, clarity of thought, courage and stamina, when all the men around them were behaving either childishly or monstrously. Women like, again, Abigail and the wise woman of Abel solving problems in a moment that the men around them couldn't solve at all except by extensive bloodshed. And so to Abishag. It is possible that she had a say in what was happening to her. It is possible that she was given a choice, that she made informed consent, and that nothing happens to her that she hadn't already agreed to. It is possible that she uh, saw this assignment as the opportunity of a lifetime. But we know that that is exceedingly unlikely. And we can see that even if she had, the human narrator of this text doesn't think it's worth mentioning. Decisions about Abishag's body and future are being made with her reactions and thoughts blanked. She's introduced to us as some form of medical intervention wherein she has no rights, like a poor person, perhaps in China or in India, who is killed for their organs. What's happening to Abishag, in a sense, is sexual harassment in the name of the state. The men around her are behaving monstrously, and Abishag was probably very frightened. But somehow and again, she's the only person whose response to the dying David is appropriate. In verse 4 and in verse 15, Abishag took care of the king. Quietly and unobtrusively, she attended him, caring for him serving him, ministering to him. Uh, In these observations, I'm indebted to Eugene Peterson, and I'd like to quote uh, at length from his book, Leap Over a Wall, Reflections on the Life of David. Eugene writes, In the story as it's given to us, Abishag is a witness to the sanctity of death, a sacred presence to David in his dying And as such, a quiet rebuke to the others in the story who respond to David's death as either a problem to be solved, an opportunity to be seized, or a difficulty to be negotiated. We have no record of anything she says. But her very non-speaking provides the perspective by which we notice each of these other responses for what they are, namely dehumanizing responses to death, Not many of us actually know how to behave in the presence of death, in the presence of dying. I I remember vividly the first time I was in the presence of somebody dying, and I remember it vividly because I was terrified. Uh, In actual fact, up until that point in my life, this was probably the most frightened I had ever been. I didn't know what I was doing, and I knew that I didn't know what I was doing, but I'd been called in by the switchboard of the hospital as chaplain on call with the request that I respond to relatives who were seeking Presbyterian last rites, whatever that might be, (laughs) for uh, their dying relative. Arriving at the bedside at about 1 a.m., I prayed for him, Uh, He was unconscious, but I prayed for him. Uh, um, I uh, led him through uh, the sinner's prayer, even though he was unconscious. I prayed uh, with the family. I led them in prayers. I read from the Bible. I said a lot for a while. But then I ran out of words and just simply stayed with them through the watches of the night until he died shortly before dawn. Actually, just in case it's interesting to you, what crossed my mind the moment he died, a selfish thought, but anyway, what crossed my mind the moment he died was, that didn't look too hard. I guess I could do that. Abishag, God bless her, the Lord bless her memory, Abishag was way ahead of me. In the face of death, she did the one thing we find hardest. She treated David as a human being, not as a problem to be fixed or an opportunity to be seized or a transaction to be negotiated or a past fail ministry project, but rather as a person, taking care of his needs, attending to his wants. Abushag, the Shunammite, is the Christ Presence in today's text. For Abishag, being young and astonishingly beautiful, led directly to something that was probably the worst thing that had happened to her in her young life. Like Abishag, the worst thing that has ever happened either to you or to me is the worst thing that has ever, ever happened to you or to me, probably because it was unjust and dehumanizing. It may have been physically painful as well. But the physical pain was probably nothing compared to how unjust it was and how dehumanizing it was. That's probably what made it really traumatic. Jesus' death on the cross was physically painful. We can be sure of that, but it was, as the gospel authors tell us, the humiliation, the dehumanizing shame, the insults, the infinite injustice of it. These were the things that made the cross so galling and the temptation to avoid it so powerful. It has been explained to me that one of the things about crucifixion is that it was, apart from anything else, a form of sexual abuse, naked and on display. What we very rarely understand, what we very rarely understand, is that when life is at its worst, dehumanizing and unjust that is when we have the greatest opportunity to follow Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to glorify God. The apostle Peter wrote to slaves who were experiencing dehumanizing and unjust persecution from masters who were legally entitled to do to them whatever they wanted. And Peter's exhortation to them is not something that we'd ever conceive of ever saying nowadays, his exhortation to these slaves enduring this unjust, dehumanising persecution is: "Take it on the chin, boys. Stuck it up. Endure it. Think about God while you're doing it." How could such un, how could such unfeeling, callous advice ever, ever be justified? Astonishingly, Peter justifies it this way. He says. For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they held their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Um, For Peter, this is revolutionary, and this is when God is most powerfully at work. When we are powerless, when we are falsely accused, when we are wrongfully dismissed, when we are deliberately misquoted, when we are slandered, abused, rejected, neglected, when it is all so dehumanizing and infinitely unjust. But if we trust God, And don't repay evil with evil. That's when God is most powerfully at work, redeeming the situation, advancing the kingdom. Heaven forbid that you might hear me saying, are you being abused? Stay there and suck it up. Heaven forbid. No, no, no. The first Christian response to persecution is to flee. But there'll be days when we can't flee and there'll be days when we hear the Spirit telling us to walk to Jerusalem. For so many of us as Christians, we pass through the worst days of our lives having little idea or no idea that we are retelling the Christ story. We might even sometimes get to the point of cursing God and saying, I can't believe you're letting me go through this. Or in faith, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet not realizing that this is the time that we are the closest we'll ever be to telling the story of Jesus, to taking up our cross, To glorifying our Father. To giving glory to God who was abused, dehumanized, and who suffered unjustly in order to save the world. Abishag, the Christ figure in the story. We thank you, Lord, for her silent witness and testimony. To God be the glory both now and forever. Amém.